Welcome everyone, whoever out there might be listening to this, whoever has a vague interest in Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, or anything related to it. Welcome, my name is Georgina, and this is What on Middle-Earth, the first episode uh, where you can hear me ramble about anything related to, uh, to Tolkien's works, um, and if you want to know a little bit more about where I'm starting from here, why I'm doing this, uh, where we're going from to start with with this podcast, check out my welcome episode, which I'm hoping to add to alongside this episode, this first episode that's going to be incredibly awkward while I ramble into the microphone, but I'll try and upload them both at the same time so you can get a bit more of an idea of who I am, my background, what I'm doing here, and just my general love for Tolkien as it is. So hopefully, as I'm planning to mention in that episode, I am going to go through pretty much anything I can find in terms of Tolkien's work, starting with uh, The Silmarillion, and each chapter uh, is going to be an episode, hopefully, and I'm just going to ramble along about it, talk about thoughts, ideas, what I imagine uh, in terms of what's being written, and just generally enjoy the writing, um, kind of think about some creative ideas to do with the writing, um, discover some new things that I may not have known before, because originally my, uh, my Tolkien experience is almost solely Lord of the Rings. So with going back to the Silmarillion, basically the beginning of the universe, right? I'm hoping to really dig into the meat of the universe that he created, the backstory, and just the general world building, and enjoy it along with you, um, and hopefully you will continue on with me for the whole ride. So without further ado, as they say, let's jump into it. So this first episode, of course, is going to just be a bit of a ramble about the first chapter of The Silmarillion, the Ainulindale. And please, <laughs> if there are any comments, if I'm pronouncing anything incorrectly, if I'm butchering anything with my English accent, let me know um, and I will do my best going forward. So how does the world, the universe, I suppose, uh, in Tolkien's writing begin. It begins with the music of the Ainur. And to my understanding, here, here's how I sort of think about the Ainur. They are the deities of this universe. They are the gods. And in general, I find deities, mythology from any civilization, be that Greek, Roman, Celtic, Nordic, any of those. I find them fascinating. And just the way that humans can ascribe elements to specific gods, you know, um, unexplained things were kind of explained away as happenings of the gods. So for me, I actually found the Aina Lindale, 
very interesting, very engaging. And I know a lot of people talk about uh, Tolkien's works as being quite dense sometimes and a bit difficult to wrap the head around, but personally, I really enjoyed this. So we start off with Eru, who is also known as Iluvatar, the one who made the Aino. They are extensions of his thought, which is also a really interesting concept. You know, you've got this one, one above all, if anyone knows anything about uh, Marvel comics, there's also, a, I believe, a character called the one above all who oversees the entire universe. This seems to be similar. You know, he is, um, he is Iluvatar. He is the one who, you know, creates Middle-earth Arda, the world, out of his thought. And he made the Aina, the Holy Ones, and that was it for a while, before anything else was made. That was all that existed. And as a, as a concept, it can be a bit difficult to sort of wrap your head around that, you know. Nothing exists tangibly at this point. So if that's the case, what form does Iluvatar take? Is he just, you know, this amorphous mist <laughs> hanging around through the atmosphere? And what of his Aina, what of his thoughts? What kind of form do they take? Um, I mean, it could be down to all kinds of interpretation there. You can ascribe them human forms. I know it's mentioned later on that they do occasionally walk in human forms, but that, as far as I know, is a later development. Because at this point, nothing exists. No landforms, nothing. Now, the next thing that I find very interesting is that all creation, and this is quite beautiful, actually, all creation that happens in Tolkien's universe is made through song. So I've actually got the book open here, whether that's a good idea or not, just rambling while having a book open. Um, he spoke to them, propounding to them themes of music, and they sang before him and he was glad. But for a long while they sang only each alone, or but a few together, while the rest hearkened. For each comprehended only that part of the mind of Iluvatar from which he came, and in the understanding of their brethren they grew but slowly." So each part of his thought is working separately to the rest. And I think the idea, right, of the entire universe being as poetic and full of poetry, <laughs> how many times can I say poetry, um, full of, you know, nuance as a song is really beautiful and just how a song can have different parts you know the melody the harmony the bass all that kind of stuff um they can also come together and be in harmony and so it was here uh, then Aluvatar said to them of the theme that i have declared to you i will now that ye make in harmony together a great music and since I have kindled you with the flame imperishable, you shall show forth your powers in adorning this theme, each with his own thoughts and devices, if he will. But I will sit and hearken, and be glad that though that through you, great beauty has been awakened into song. So, also at this point, and we'll, we'll get further into this later, but at this point, there is no evil. It is just beauty and light and promise, I suppose, of the song and what can be created. Um, and at this point, you know, 
They sing of what will be created, the children of Iluvatar, who are the elves, the first children at least, are the elves, and the children that come after that are the humans, the men of the world. Um, and so I'm curious to know if anyone out there is listening to this, because I know art exists of this moment, this chapter, and various people have tried to, what what's the word I'm thinking of here, uh, interpret, I suppose, what this music looked like. If anyone has any ideas in their mind about how this looks to them, I would absolutely love to know what your thought is. I wish I could remember the artist of the piece I'm thinking of, but there is some art that exists, you know, of just a black sky and it's dotted with, you know, swirls of light and it could almost be human form, but not quite. And, you know, you can see vaguely the form of a Louvatar and it's just kind of all conglomerated, for lack of a better word. I don't really know which other word to use, but um, I think that's a really interesting and difficult thing for the mind to process. We're used to tangible things, right? And so something that intangible can be a bit hard to wrap your head around. But yeah, once again, I would love to know if anyone has anything uh, in mind for that. Um, And then so the themes are being played and we come eventually to Melkor. Now, I think if anyone of us knows anything about Tolkien, about Middle-earth, Lord of the Rings, Melkor's not, you know, he's not a good guy. (laughs) He is responsible for, you know, bringing discord, basically, into the world, into this universe that was all full of beauty, because of jealousy, because of his own uh, malcontent, I suppose. And the fact that I believe, once again, someone correct me if I'm wrong, the fact that he is unable to create life of his own in the way that uh, Manwe is. We'll get to Manwe in just a second. Um, But Melkor, one of the Ainur, one of uh, Eru's thoughts, he is just not having a good time here. Let's, uh, I've got another page open here. Let's see if we can get to the bit that I'm thinking of. Um, As the theme progressed, it came into the heart of Melkor to interweave matters of his own imagining that were not in accord with the theme of Iluvatar, for he sought therein to increase the power and glory of the part assigned to himself. To Melkor among the Ainur had been given the greatest gifts of power and knowledge, and he had a share in all the gifts of his brethren. He had gone often alone into the void, places seeking the imperishable flame, for desire grew hot within him to bring into being things of his own and it seemed to him that Iluvatar took no thought for the void, and he was impatient of its emptiness. Yet he found not the fire, for it is with Iluvatar, but being alone, he had begun to conceive thoughts of his own, unlike those of his brethren. So, once again, he's just full of jealousy, despite being part of the whole, he is also part of Iluvatar's thoughts. Um, I find it very interesting that he alone went into the void, which is really all that existed before Arda did, you know, just the great emptiness. And he dwelt there and he was just jealous that he didn't have the imperishable flame and he couldn't find it. Um, That was not within his uh, wheelhouse, as they say. 
Some of these thoughts he now wove into his music, and straight away discord arose about him, and many that sang nigh him grew despondent, and their thought was disturbed and their music faltered. But some began to attune their music to his rather than to the thought which they had at first. Then the discord of Melkor spread ever wider, and the melodies which had been heard before founded in a sea of turbulent sound. But Iluvatar sat and hearkened, until it seemed that about his throne there was a raging storm, as of dark waters that made war upon one another, in an endless wrath that should not be assuaged. So, it's quite interesting that, you know, Iluvatar doesn't stop this. It's almost, I wouldn't say that he expects it, but he lets the storm rage, he lets Melkor sow his discord. For what purpose, I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, maybe because he believes that it will have no bearing in the greater music of the world and just kind of lets him be. Who really knows? I'm not certain myself, you know, I'm still, still theorizing at this point. I'm absolutely not uh, the level of a Tolkien scholar at this point. But, you know, eventually he rises up and Melkor has his own uproar and Luvatar just kind of stands and finally has had enough. And I think it's pretty interesting. We've got here, you know, the melody kind of overcomes it. Um, again, Iluvatar rose, and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern, and he lifted up his right hand, and behold, a third theme grew amid the confusion, and it was unlike the others, for it seemed at first soft and sweet, a mere rippling of gentle sounds and delicate melodies, but it could not be quenched, and it took to itself power and profundity. And it seemed, at last, that there were two musics progressing at one time before the seat of Iluvatar, and they were utterly at variance. The one was deep and wide and beautiful, but slow and blended with an immeasurable sorrow, from which its beauty gosh, I can't talk from which its beauty chiefly came. The other had now achieved a unity of its own, but it was loud and vain and endlessly repeated, and it had little harmony, but rather a clamorous unison as of many trumpets braying upon a few notes. So there is more music, a third music, as uh, as they mentioned. But uh, e even in the midst of all of this strife, as they say, um, and the halls shaking with all of the discord, you know, the, the music of the Ainur versus whatever nonsense Melkor is going on with because he's just annoyed. Um, it, it is still, you know, there is some harmony between them. And that's quite, uh, that's quite interesting to, to read about. So after this clash of titans, I suppose you could call it, comes some really exciting and more beautiful stuff where Iluvatar says to them that it's time to behold their music and everything finally takes form and he shows them a vision and I find this quite emotional actually you know he shows them the entire world all of Arda unfolding its history before them you know, everything that will happen, everything that will awaken, um, you know, and the Ainur are there, and 
looking at it and they're filled with love for the children of Iluvatar that they know will come to be, so the elves and eventually at a later time the men of the world. And many, many things happen here. Um, some, in fact, the majority of which are kind of left to our imagination to think about and decide what it is that Iluvatar is telling the Ainur about. Um, but what do we have here about the children of Iluvatar? Let's see, we've got, they saw the, with amazement the coming of the children of Iluvatar and the habitation that was prepared for them, and they perceived that they themselves and the labour of their music had been busy with the preparation of this dwelling, and yet knew not that it had any purpose beyond its own beauty. For the children of Iluvatar were conceived by him alone, and they came with the third theme, and were not in the theme which Iluvatar propounded at the beginning, and none of the Ainur had part in their making. Therefore, when they beheld them, the more did they love them, being things other than themselves, strange and free, wherein they saw the mind of Iluvatar reflected anew, and learned yet a little more of his wisdom, which otherwise had been hidden even from the Ainur. So it's really interesting here that, you know, the children are purely of Iluvatar's thought, and despite the fact that the Ainur are fragments of Iluvatar's thought, they had no making in this. They have their own strains of the music, if you like, their own thoughts that they wanted to put into Arda and their own part that they wanted to play in creating the world. The children of the of the Iluvatar, <laughs> there is only one, the children of Iluvatar are purely of his thought and their purpose and their ultimate end, I suppose, is known only to him. And yet the Ainur loved them because they are of Iluvatar. And I suppose, how could you not if it's you know, the creation of your ultimate creator, right? So I think that's really, really interesting and very <laughs> heartwarming, I suppose, to know that these gods, these deities, loved the inhabitants of Arda even before they existed. And they don't really know why, they just do. Um, and they're excited for the time when they exist. So I think alongside this, we have a whole explanation or once again, kind of painting some real pictures with words here about this explosion of color and light that is Arda, the earth, kind of contrasted with Melkor's darkness and brooding and uh, basically being emo, you know, he enjoys kind of sitting in his corner and hating everything good that anyone is creating at any time, despite him being, as they say, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, of all the Ainur. He still sits there and feels, I don't know if feel sorry for himself is the right phrase to use there, but instead of becoming a part of it, he sits there and broods and makes his own discord. Um, but then we kind of come to a bit more of an explanation of the various Ainur. Once again, I get very excited by this part because I love me my gods and goddesses and my pantheons and my my uh, mythology of various things. So we talk a bit here about Ulmo, who 
I think is possibly one of my favorites of the Aino. He's the only one, uh, maybe we'll come back around to this later because it's it's mentioned later on. He's the only one of the Aino who dwells in the oceans of Arda and watches over the inhabitants of Arda at a closer quarters, you know, than the rest of the Aino because they are elsewhere in their own domain, which we'll talk about later. But he is not often in that god's domain. He roams the waters and only occasionally comes over to where the rest of the gods, the Aino, uh, reside. Um, so Ulmo is the lord of the seas, and he rules over the vast, vast oceans of Arda. And we have Manwe, who is the king of the Aino, and he rules over the skies and the air, and he is the eyes, I suppose, of Iluvatar, and the one who is closest to his ear, I want to say. It, seem, it seems that, I believe anyway, and once again, I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm, if I'm mistaken, but it seems to me that if ever any of the other Aino have thoughts or, you know, desires that they want to convey to him, they will, him being a Luvatar, that is, um, they will go through Manway quite often. Um, and he is, as it's mentioned here, the noblest of the Aino. We also have Aule, who, oh, maybe he's, I'm, I'm now thinking about top five, top five Aino. Maybe um, uh, Aule is up there. He is, um, he deals with the fabric of the earth and he is the smith of the, of the Aino. And later on, he's responsible for the creation of the dwarves, but we'll get to that at a later point. Uh, but he has that whole realm under his control. So already we have three pretty major deities. We have Ulmo of the waters, Manwe of the sky, and Aule of the earth. I suppose if you if you wanted to think about it this way, could you even say that... Uh, that Melkor is of fire? I wonder. That would cover all of our four elements, our four basic elements anyway. Um, but maybe that's me reaching a little bit, maybe. He does deal a lot with forging, with fire, um, and in fact, I think that kind of comes into play later on uh, in terms of you know, Sauron, but that that's way, way off. We're, we're before the first age at this point, so we'll get there eventually, but maybe he is. Maybe him being the Aina of fire is not quite such a stretch after all. Um, in any case, Ulmo and Manwe are bros, <laughs> in, in a, to put it in one way. Um, it mentioned here um, that he seeks Manwe, Ulmo seeks Manwe, and that they will forever make melodies for the delight of Iluvatar, and they've always been allied and always will be, and they are the most faithful to the purpose of Iluvatar, which is, you know, knowing the way as we in modern times see nature, the air, the sky, and the sea. That's quite a poetic thing, I think, to write about. Um, but it's also interesting to remember at this point 
up until this point at least, yes, the void exists, but the Aina are not aware of anything except light. Because there is a section coming up here where it mentions that as Ulmo speaks, and while the Aino are gazing upon his vision of, you know, the harmony of the sky and the sea, it was taken away and hidden from their sight, and it seemed to them that in that moment they perceived a new thing, darkness, which they had not known before except in thought. So, I mean, that makes me wonder, what was the void before, before Arda exists, if not darkness? Are there other interpretations of the void? Is it just, instead of just darkness, is it nothing? And how do you even wrap your head around the concept of nothing? That's uh, that's quite a brain twister. But it kind of, you know, foretells a lot of the, the darkness and the battles that are to come in Arda, in Middle-earth. So at this point that, you know, they're, they've become aware of darkness. But once again, Iluvatar does not seem at all phased by this. He was like, look guys, just, you know, this may be what it will be, but I'm going to now put your thought into tangible creation. And he goes ahead and tries to quell the unrest of the Ainur, and he creates air. What is Ea? Ea is the world. It is the Earth, Arda, Middle-earth, I suppose, the entire... Although, I mean, Middle-earth is a part of the globe, as we know it in this universe. But Ea is the world. It is, as it's mentioned here, the world that is. So it suddenly comes into being, and it is a light with a heart of flame. And... I believe it's mentioned somewhere, whether it's here or maybe further off, I can't remember off the top of my head, that that is the flame imperishable that is sitting at the heart of the world, um, you know, keeping it going, keeping it alight and alive. And as it happens, the Ainur, so we, we know of a good dozen or so of the Ainur who uh make their way to Middle-earth. There are, there are many, many of them, and some of them choose to abide with Iluvatar outside of the physical world. So in the universe, into the void, um, so not being a part of the tangible earth. But there are some who decide to descend to Ea, Middle-earth, and stay there. But that's kind of Iluvatar's decree, I guess you could call it to those Ainur who decide to descend into Middle-earth, that they will stay there and they will be bound to it. So that is, you know, a forever deal until it's complete. It being the music of the world um, until the song is over. And until this point, you know, where we are, if, if you want to tie in the mythology with our modern day, the song isn't over and it may not be for a very, very, very long time. So, you know, they exist within the world and they are the Valar, who you may have heard of. Um, they are the powers of the world and they include, you know, Manwe, Ulmo, uh, Aule, and a few others, which we'll probably get to in the next chapter, I think. But when the Valar descend into Ea, 
I mean, you remember from just a little while ago, they were singing about all these beautiful, bright, amazing, glorious things that will be before the earth is created. And they descend into air and there's nothing. <laughs> there's absolutely nothing there. It's dark. It's, you know, quiet. Um, and it says here, the great music had been but the growth and flowering of thought in the timeless halls, and the vision only a foreshowing. But now they had entered in at the beginning of time, and the Valar perceived that the world had been but foreshadowed and foresung, and that they must achieve it. So, basically, Iluvatar's not giving them anything for free. If they want to create the world that they've sung about and that they've dreamed about, they will have to put a bit of work into it, which is a good life lesson, I feel. Whether you're whether you're a god, whether you're a regular old human or whatever else, it's a good, uh, good theme to go by. So the Valar perceive that they are going to have a lot of labours, you know, and this stuff definitely doesn't happen overnight, I suppose. Um, and in that time, they take upon themselves, specifically Manwe, Aule, and Ulma, Ulmo, <laughs> um, our, three, our three bros who cover air, earth, and water, um, to start on those labours. And of course, guess who else descended into air and became a Valar? Our old emo buddy, Melkor. So of course he's in there. He's kind of trying to trip up everybody as soon as they try to make something good. Um, it says here, Melkor too was there from the first and he meddled in all that was done, turning it, if he might, to his own desires and purposes. And he kindled great fires. When therefore earth was yet young and full of flame, Melkor coveted it, and he said to the other Valar, This shall be my own kingdom, and I name it unto myself. So he didn't really want to do any of the work to make it nice, but he wanted it to be his anyway. I mean, he makes it very difficult to like him in any way, doesn't he? He's he's a bit of a bit of a slacker. But, you know, right now, and I feel like this happens a few times in um in the coming stories as as the world takes shape but manwe is melkor's brother on the same level i suppose and he's often quite gentle and lenient with him i find um and i think in some in some ways he's a bit too gentle with him and a bit too lenient i mean yes he's he's punished but I think not to the extent that he should be a lot of the time. So eventually, Melkor kind of gives up and goes back into his hole, up wherever that hole might be, um, because Manwe basically tells him, this is, isn't your world to take. Uh, rightly so, as well. And in that time, the Valar start their labours, and they take on, it says here, shape and hue, which is once again an interesting thing to try and imagine here. What shape do they take? Do they immediately take on human forms as they're depicted in art? How would they know that? Is it a form that they take on knowing what the children of Iluvatar will look like in the future? It's kind of not 
clear at this point, so very much open to interpretation. Of course, I immediately imagine them to look like I've seen them in a million forms of artwork, but I think that's very much up to interpretation and whatever it is you think they look like to begin with. Let me know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, But they have majesty, they have splendor, of course they are, they're gods, um, and they can walk as they please across the earth. And some take male form, some take female form, as we'll once again cover a bit later on. Um, But I think here, you know, they draw companions to themselves, they draw you know, I believe when they mention companions here, it's it's the lesser gods, the Maya, which we'll also cover later on. Um, and once again, it's it's an excuse for Melkor to be incredibly jealous. He just every time something happens in in this uh, the beginnings of the world, he's just jealous. He saw them take form and he's like, nah, I want that. And instead of trying, I'm going to get angry and I'm going to destroy everything good and wonderful that's been created. Um, and he is just full of turmoil. He descends upon Arda in power and majesty greater than any of the other Valar, as a mountain that wades in the sea and has its head above the clouds and is clad in ice and crowned with smoke and fire. And the light of the eyes of Melkor is like a flame that withers with heat and pierces with a deadly cold. And this is, as we close out the first chapter and this first episode, this is the first battle of the Valar with Melkor, the first battle of many, which the elves will never know about, men will never know about. But, you know, the first tumult that shapes Ea, Arda, and it's just absolutely apocalyptic. (laughs) It says here, you know, it's told among the Eldar. That's 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 the elves. But once again, we'll cover that later. The El- the Eldar are the the elves. That the Valar endeavoured ever, in despite of Melkor, to rule the earth and to prepare it for the coming of the firstborn. And they built lands, and Melkor destroyed them. Valleys they delved, and Melkor raised them up. Mountains they carved, and Melkor threw them down. Seas they hollowed, and Melkor spilled them. A nought might have peace or come to lasting growth. For as surely as the Valar began a labour, so would Melkor undo it or corrupt it. And yet their labour was not all in vain. And though nowhere and in no work was their will and purpose wholly fulfilled, and all things were in hue and shape other than the Valar had first intended, slowly, nonetheless, the earth was fashioned and made firm. So... I personally find it very frustrating when I hear about Melkor just being absolutely petulant. Yes, he's the brother of Man- Manwe, but yeah, it's like the spoiled brat of the entire family of Iluvatar's thought. It's it's terrible. But you know, for everything for everything that they've dreamed, it might not be exactly perfect, you know, the way they'd envi- envisioned it, but despite Melkor's meddling, this chapter, the Ainulindale, ends with Earth being created. The habitation of the children of Iluvatar is established at the last in the deeps of time and amidst the innumerable stars. So, 
where have we been in this chapter? <laughs> it's been a, quite a long and winding, interesting thing. We've gone from the void, absolute nothingness, the introduction of Ea, um, not Ea, Iluvatar, that's the one, um, Eru, Iluvatar, that is, who is the one, the one god who fragments his thought into the Aino, and they all sing of what they hope the world will be, the future, what will come to pass in this universe. Melkor also comes out of his thought, but he's a bit petulant, and he just seeks to sow discord, he hates what everyone else has, um, and eventually the earth, Arda, is made, um, and some of the Ainur descend into this earth, becoming the Valar, and of course Melkor goes with them and tries to mess up everything that they've dreamed of, but they create it regardless. And so before anything else, here we are in the middle of the void, space with these dots of stars everywhere, and the earth existing, a tiny little round ball of rock that's been created. And we get to see what happens next in the next chapter. Hopefully we will discover a bit more about the Valar, about the Maya, who are the lesser spirits of Iluvatar's thought. But thank you so much for sticking around, listening to this first very rambling episode that I've made up off the cuff while reading through the pages of this first chapter of The Silmarillion. Let me know what you think. And hopefully I'll be with you with another chapter very, very soon. Thank you so much for listening. This has been What on Middle Earth. Take care and have a wonderful rest of your day.